Hey everyone, welcome to the Coastline Covenant Podcast. This week we're doing something a little different. Well, I'm doing something a little different. Instead of a normal episode, I thought it would be fun to do a devotional based on two things, food and grace. One is something that we have a lot of on a day like Thanksgiving, and one is something that we need a lot of on a day like Thanksgiving. So feel free to put this on while you're cooking your Thanksgiving turkey, heading to your parents' house for Thanksgiving, running in the turkey trot, or when you have a 15-minute break through the day. This whole thing is just meant to create some space and invite you to think about God's grace and love to you and how that can kind of get lost on a day like Thanksgiving. of scripture is grace. This idea of God's unmerited favor towards humanity. This is just an aspect of God's character. It's what he does. In church, we talk a lot about God's grace to us, specifically as we consider Jesus's sacrifice on the cross. I'm reminded of Romans 5, where Paul says that Christ's death for us came at the right time while we were still sinners. This is grace. The blessings of God we neither earned nor deserved, but we receive nonetheless. On a more intimate level, I think that grace is more than just forgiveness or letting someone off the hook. Dallas Willard says that grace is not just about forgiveness, but about life. And Eugene Peterson says that the life of faith is a daily exploration of the constant and countless ways in which God's grace and love are experienced. The countless ways in which God's favor and God's love are experienced. Clearly, there's a day-to-day element of grace, a constant, daily, hourly journey in which we seek to discover the ways in which the Lord has been good to us. The moments of grace we receive when we make it to 5 p.m. after an impossibly complex day, or when we somehow survive that conversation, or when everything works out. Those moments that remind us to look beyond the moment and recognize that God is behind them, and he's using them to point us to the greater reality of who he is. And what's important about grace is that it's both an object lesson and a way to live. God uses it to teach us about his character and invites us to model our lives on grace as well. In other words, we live by the grace of God, not just for ourselves, but so that we may extend it to others. I'm reminded of Paul. In a majority of his letters, he either ends or begins them with the words, grace to you. Believe it or not, our biblical authors also speak extensively about food. In 1 Corinthians 10.31, Paul says that we can eat and drink to the glory of God. In Ecclesiastes, we're told to eat bread with joy and to drink wine with a merry heart. Jesus calls himself the bread of life in John 6.35. Passover or the Lord's Supper is literally a meal, and the inauguration of the new heaven and new earth in Revelation is called a marriage banquet. Food is not just sustenance to God, however. But it's also a medium for him to tell his story and complete his work, which is why we should not be surprised that in each of the four Gospels, we get a picture of a Savior that eats so much that he has to push back on claims that he's just a glutton or a drunk. Let's focus for a moment in the Gospel of Luke. Zooming out for a second, the Gospel of Luke alone has eight instances of Jesus eating meals. New Testament scholar David Garland says that these all point to the fact that meals are a part of Jesus's campaign to restore sinners. 
In Luke chapter 5, we see that Jesus goes to a great banquet held in his honor at the house of a tax collector. Eating a meal in the time of Jesus was less of an intimate dinner party and more of a celebration, a public spectacle open to observation. And the Pharisees observe this meal and they're furious at the unexpected imagery that's in front of them. Here we have the one proclaiming the good news of God, explicitly not preaching or teaching, but rather showing compatibility and enjoying companionship with those from whom he should be distanced. Jesus recognizes their feelings and reminds those experts in the law that it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. Jesus did not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. To the Pharisees, Jesus is too sociable with the wrong people, which was not, in their wildest dreams, the posture that the Messiah would assume. But Jesus says that these sociable interactions are actually the venue through which he will accomplish his goal, saving sinners and transforming them into his image and likeness. A few chapters later in Luke 7, 34, Jesus responds again to the Pharisees in their claim that he's not living up to their expectations. Quote, the son of man came eating and drinking, and you say, here is a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Basically, Jesus confirms, yes, he is too sociable with the wrong people, and that's all part of the plan. I've always really resonated with the phrase, the medium is the message, which basically is the idea that says the communication medium itself is more important than the message that said communication carries. In other words, how someone is saying something is usually more compelling than what they're actually saying. That's the way that Jesus uses meals, if you think about it. It's the perfect example of this. Jesus says that his mission is to extend God's grace to people so that they might experience it. Jesus says that his mission is meant to be spread and shared among all people. And then he chooses to sit down for a meal, a delicious, sustaining, barrier-destroying, invitational situation as a way to clearly explain what he meant. Jesus' followers and his critics see and hear that he's breaking down barriers, authentic barriers and inauthentic barriers by eating alongside those we'd expect to be on the outside looking in. I'm reminded of Psalm 34, 8, taste and see that the Lord is good. Put another way, God is good and you can experience his goodness. Anybody can experience his goodness in the same way that you can experience the beauty of a good meal and a good conversation. In all of this screams invitation. God's grace is only half realized if we keep it to ourselves. Like a great recipe or a nice bottle of wine to really enjoy the grace of God, we must give it away. Think about a time that you had to forgive someone. Maybe you were wronged immensely by someone in your family. Maybe a former partner or a former friend got the best of you, and you extended the grace of God to him or to her. Doesn't that make Jesus' words about love and forgiveness that much more poignant? Or think smaller. You gave up the parking spot for a person in a rush. You let someone cut you in line at Trader Joe's. You, you told someone that they looked nice. All of these moments are day-making, not only for the recipient, but for you as well, as you remember that God has done the same for you in a very big and in a very small way. Meals are perfectly, and I mean perfectly, suited to show God's message and mission of grace in all the giant and in all the minuscule ways. Food is both an experience and an invitation. You can taste and see that food is good, and you can make enough to invite everyone you know to experience it as well. Sitting down at a meal means you might be across from someone with a different life than the one that you have, but in that moment, you are both there for the same thing. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, 
nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And on a day like Thanksgiving, a lot of us need to be reminded of this reality, that God's grace is big, God's grace is small, and God's grace is for everyone. The table is set for all to come and experience God. What a great reminder, because today can be a day where you feel as if you are barely scraping by. Maybe you're the mom in the kitchen preparing a few hundred different meals for a few hundred different family members. Maybe you're the child that's eagerly awaiting the moment where you, along with the rest of your family, break your fast and sit down at the meal you so desperately wish to consume. Maybe you're the parent trying to maintain some semblance of peace while your entire house devolves into chaos. Or maybe you're the family member hiding in the bathroom, the kids' table, or in front of the TV because the holidays are anything but graceful. They're painful reminders of loss, tension, stress, and strain. Maybe you're reminded of what once was at the holidays, but what won't be again. Empty chairs, empty plates, unread messages, and unanswered invitations. Maybe today grace feels fleeting. You're looking for the goodness at the table, but you can't seem to find it. Today, maybe more than most days, can be a day where your mind wanders so endlessly towards what you have to do, what's expected of you, or what's happened to you, that you forget what's been extended to you, as well as what's been done for you. Let us not forget who prepared this meal, Jesus. He says that if we put our burdens on him, our past, present hurts, or the things that we hold on to, we can experience rest. It does not matter what it is. To Christ, it's valid, and he'll take it from you. If we tease that out using the meal imagery, however we come to the table is how we come to the table. It may feel impossible for us to shake everything that we've gone through this year, the past two years, the past decade, so on and so forth, but the beauty of God's grace is that we don't have to. Grace says that God is not only preparing the meal, but he's lending a listening ear to whatever we have going on. He's allowing us to simultaneously sit at the table and lament about what almost kept us from getting there in the first place. God does not ask you to hang it all up at the door when you walk in. He asks that you bring it to the table so you two can work it out together. The grace that's been extended to you is, again, the invitation and the reminder that he is for you. My prayer today is that your Thanksgiving table, regardless of where it is and who sits around it, is a space where you feel like you can come as you are and feel welcome. And if that's not the case, God is still sitting with you at the table and he's still serving you the meal and he's still wanting you to eat and to have your fill. Take this moment to consider what's keeping you from fully sitting at Christ's table today. What burdens are you holding on to? What are you hoping that Christ doesn't see? Or what are you hoping that you can work out on your own? Remember his invitation to not only give our burdens to him, but to also receive his easy and light yoke in exchange. Further, take a moment to consider what's keeping you from being fully present at your actual table today. Remember the picture we have at Christ's table. All are welcome. All are invited. What's keeping you from embracing that? Who is keeping you from embracing that? What can you give over to the Lord today to better enter into the space of thanksgiving?
think about the people that you have maybe withheld inviting to Christ's table or to your own. Why is that? Past hurt, past affliction? What barriers are keeping that person from fully being themselves at Christ's table? And in what ways are you free to allow them that space today? Remember, you're invited just as they are. What can you control today and what can you give up to the Lord? Though they may not deserve it, we don't either. And look, I'm not going to push you to places where you're not ready to go. But what would it look like if right now you lifted that person up in prayer and you invited the Lord into your own table today so that you might be able to fully welcome the other person? I want to close by highlighting one of my favorite movies, Babette's Feast. If you have not seen this movie, you are missing out on one of the most beautiful experiences you'll ever have. The story is centered on two very religious Danish sisters living in a remote fishing village in the 19th century. They've inherited a very strict religious community from their father, the pastor. He's passed away, and so we're just watching the congregation dwindle out and die. We then flash back to the sisters' lives nearly 49 years ago. They're much younger, and they're attracting many suitors. One sister is wooed by a Swedish cavalry officer and the other by a famous baritone singer. The only problem is that their father won't let them leave and get married, so they're relegated to a close, quiet life on the coast with their father's church and the church's congregants. Fast forward to a pivotal moment. A French refugee, Babette, arrives at the sister's door one day, explaining via a letter that she has fled bloodshed in Paris, and a mutual friend recommended that she begins work as their housekeeper. Over the next 14 years, Babette wins over the sisters and their congregation, providing color and vibrancy to the bland life that they've been living their whole lives. All the while, Babette's community in France has been renewing her national lottery ticket each year. The prize? 10,000 francs, which I'm, I'm told is a lot. As fate would have it, one year Babette wins the lottery. As the viewer, you're convinced Babette will take this opportunity to go back to her home, back to her old life, and leave the sisters behind. But in a stunning twist, Babette puts an order to recreate a French dinner on what would have been the sister's father's 100th birthday. This excites but frightens the sister, both of whom believe that this exotic meal will spur the congregation towards the sin of sensual luxury. They begrudgingly allow the meal to occur, but on the condition that they won't talk about it with passion or excitement. The meal commences. Guests arrive and are gathered around the table, and over the course of the meal, barriers begin to break. Old loves are rekindled, conversations are resurrected, life has found its vibrancy and beauty again, and it's all because of Babette and her feast. The climactic moment comes when the Swedish cavalry officer, now a general, gives a toast. He begins by saying that mercy and truth have met together. Righteousness and bliss shall kiss one another. An immediate warmth washes over both the screen and the viewer as you recognize the holiness of this moment, all facilitated through food. As the guests leave, Babette reveals to the sisters that this meal was the entirety of her lottery winnings. She spent everything she had. She had sacrificed everything she earned to give the people a chance to remember what life is really all about. Is that not the picture of a meal that Christ invites us to? Mercy and truth meet together as we're reminded of the mercy that God has extended to us in the form of his son. We're reminded of the truth of who we are, loved, chosen, invited, and seen. Righteousness, the righteousness that we experience by being in Christ, kisses bliss as we celebrate and are reminded of the joy that we have in new life. This happens over a big meal, but it also happens over quiet coffee conversations with trusted friends. It happens in banquets and it happens in bars. It happens in feasts and it happens in famine. It happens in the large and it happens in the small. 
Grace is simultaneously the biggest and the smallest thing that we could ever know and experience. And just like the general who finds the loveliest meal in the most unexpected of places, the hope of Thanksgiving says that you might experience the loveliest of truth in the most unexpected of places. Around a big meal with your family, may you be reminded of the fact that you are loved, chosen, and welcome, just like everybody else. Happy Thanksgiving, Coastline.